0: So as I said at the beginning, today is technically the, the 12th day of Christmas. So Merry Christmas. I mean, that still applies. Uh, but we are beginning the season of Epiphany. So Epiphany is the season that commemorates the Magi coming to see Jesus. It's the physical manifest- manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles. And so that's what we celebrate and remember in the season of Epiphany. For us this year, we are dedicating this season to questions. So this graphic, I've had several questions, ironically, about the graphic and what it is. So I'll give you some pointers. So we have a flashlight, and the flashlight is illuminating some things, and then the white space is a face, and then there's some hair. So hopefully everybody sees it now. I'm seeing, it seems like they're seeing it. So this is our graphic. So if you have a question about the graphic, hopefully that question has now been answered. (laughs) You can submit questions. So, you guys are essentially driving the series. So, you can submit questions to me directly. Uh, You can go to our Instagram page and our profile. There is a link that you can send them. You can text them to me, email them to me, whatever is best for you. Um, But tonight, we're doing something a little bit different. For the last several months, this is a topic that has resonated very deeply with me, that I have felt to be very important in my own life, in my own home, my own marriage. And the way that I follow God. And so I felt like it was appropriate for us to start 2020 and start a new year in this avenue. And it's something that I hope our church starts to cultivate in your own homes, in our relationships, in the way that we follow Jesus together. So it's the new year. You're fresh off of Christmas. I imagine there were no arguments. There were no fights. There were no passive-aggressive comments. Everything was perfectly fine. You all love your families very much. You're well rested. All your anxiety is gone. No, holidays can be a stressful time. While they're a beautiful time, they also can be very hard. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's family, whatever it might be, holidays can be a time that is very hard. Often we come out of the holidays and we don't necessarily feel refreshed. We feel burdened or weighted down. This is one of the reasons why we do New Year's resolutions. We come out of Unhealthy relationships, unhealthy gatherings. We come out of eating tons of sweets and copious amounts of food. And so we are resolved to live healthier. Whether it's healthier physically, of going to the gym or starting running. Whether it's healthy emotionally or spiritually. We make these resolutions because we crave some kind of health. We crave some kind of rest, some kind of refreshment or rejuvenation. And so this topic is something that has resonated with me deeply. I've read uh, over the last few months this book uh, by a guy named John Mark Comer. So he's a pastor in Portland, and he has a podcast that accompanies this book, essentially. And the title of this book is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So we'll get to in a second where that comes from, but as I look to 2020, that's where I envision myself and my family trying to get to. What does it look like to eliminate hurry? And that's what I hope our church does as well. Hurry and busyness is something that characterizes us. Oftentimes you might say to someone, hey, how are you? I'm good, but I'm really busy. It's in some ways a badge that we wear. We can say we're busy as if to denote how maybe important we are, how busy our schedules are, how there's so many things for us to do. Oftentimes busyness is a thing that we throw out there. We talk about busyness in relationships, busyness at work, busyness in home, if you have kids and taking them to practices and games and things like that. Busyness is something that's very characteristic of where we're at. And much of those things are very good things. Our jobs can be good things, our families, our relationships, these can all be good things. Coming to church, it's something that fills your time, volunteering, there's lots of things that are good. The question is not necessarily what are some good things that I can devote my time to, but how can I devote my time to such a limited amount of good things? There's plenty of good things to fill our time. What's fascinating is in the 1960s, they were looking forward a couple decades, and they were projecting that by the 80s and 90s, because of technological advancements, the problem that we were going to face was that we would have too much leisure time. They thought all of these advancements are gonna happen and so people are gonna have too much leisure time. They predicted that Americans would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks out of the year. I don't know anyone who does that. And that's what they were seeing as they were seeing these advancements in technology and all these things, but these are things that have actually, even though they've given us additional time, we filled our time with something else. Think of like a microwave. We no longer have to put food in the oven to wait on it. We can zap it in the microwave. We have instant coffee. Though I'm sure some of you here don't drink instant coffee. Myself doesn't either. I'm not sure if that's how you say (laughs) myself doesn't either. But there's all these advances that have happened to save us time, yet we filled our time with something else. Now things that I didn't mention in those are two things that I would say take a lot of our time And much of that is through inattention. And that is our phone and our television. If you go up to somebody and you say, hey, how are you? And they're like, yeah, I'm really busy. I was super slammed watching like five hours of Netflix last night. (laughs) Usually that's not their response to their busyness. But that is one thing that takes a ton of our time. So first, the smartphone. This is for millennials. So the majority of the room, One in four millennials spend five hours a day on their phone, with 50% spending three hours a day on your phone. Now, not just millennials, but 70% of all people, 70% of people sleep with their smartphones in their room, and 90% of people, the very first thing they do when they get up in the morning is they check their phone. So the phone has an immense amount of power and control over us. But it's not just the phone, while my generation spends more time on the phone older generations actually spend more time on television so for my generation we are more likely to consume television and something like netflix or hulu or prime some kind of subscription like that whereas the older generations it's much more cable subscriptions and things like that michael can you throw that graphic up there so this chart is going to show you essentially what it looks like so on this left side you can see 18 to 34 is about two hours a day And then all the way to the right side, 65 and plus, seven hours of TV every day. That's a lot of TV. We'll cut them some slack. Likely, they're retired, so they have lots of time. But this median average of all adults, 18 and over, somewhere around four and a half hours of television a day. So if you add that together with the amount of time we spend on our phones, you're somewhere in the ballpark of six to eight hours a day on those things, and we'll say you are, you are all on the conservative end of things, but you're likely still spending three to five hours a day, whether it's through television, or whether it's through the phone. Now, the phone has a really helpful way that you can actually track this. Um, if you have an iPhone, if you don't, it's 2020. Sorry that you don't have an iPhone yet. <laughs> you can go into settings, and there's this thing called screen time, and it'll show you how much time you use on your phone every day and every week. It'll send you a report, it'll break down the usage and all those things. And so the the best way to figure out where we're at is to start tracking where we're at. So if you're like, oh no, I don't think I spend that much time between TV and phone, social media, all those things, then I would encourage you to try to track and see realistically how much time do you spend on these things. Now, you might be thinking, Joe's just ranting against technology again, social media, all those things. This is really not that big of a deal. This is just scrolling through Instagram, looking at the tweets or whatever you do with Twitter. It's not that big of a deal. It's five minutes here, 30 minutes here. It's not that big of a deal. It might seem inconsequential, but I believe this is actually having an enormous effect on us. So one of the quotes out of this book, uh, Comer is actually quoting this guy by the name of Ronald Rollheiser, who's a a Catholic theologian. And this is what he says. It's It's a lengthy quote, but it's all very important. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but to simply have any interior death whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. That's strong language. It's not that we have anything against God's depth and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these things show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life that these produce in us rather than our interest in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today in our spiritual lives. For every kind of reason, good and bad, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion That is as extreme language. And because of this, because of all the things that draw on our attention, Some statistics say people are targeted 4,000 times a day for advertisements. There's so many things competing for our attention. This busyness is leading us to a place where we are tired. I imagine almost every one of us can walk into this room and there's some kind of weight that we feel. Some kind of weariness or fatigue that we feel. And we're not the first ones to, to come to this. This is what Jesus is talking about in this passage tonight. In Matthew 11, he is talking about you who are tired. I imagine him talking to people and they're like, yes, that is me. I am tired. Are you here? Do you feel weary? Do you feel worn out? And people are thinking, yes, that's me. Like, what What do you have to give me? What is going to be the solution? And what Jesus says is actually a little bit odd. He says, take my yoke upon you. But a yoke was a, a work instrument. It was something that you would strap to animals in order to plow fields. So thinking, we're already tired, we don't need another instrument, another thing to make us work. This is what Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a theologian, who says about this. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might he offers what we might think tired workers do not need what they need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his sermon on the mount, his yoke will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. See, Jesus is offering us something very different than I think we would have anticipated. We might have thought, well, we just need more time. If I had more time, then I would be able to do all these things. I would be able to master Spanish. I would be able to learn how to cook better. I would be able to do all of these things, X, Y, and Z. But if that's your thought, then what makes you think you would fill your time with more than what you're currently using your time for. Is that going to be something else or is it just going to be an extension of what you're doing? The solution is not more time to affect our busyness. The solution is a different way of life. And so Jesus is coming to this person. He's offering them a tool. He's offering a totally different lifestyle. Now this yoke, until this week, I didn't realize this or put this together. This yoke was meant to be used with another animal. Often it wasn't something that you did by yourself, it was something that you did with another animal. And so as we go into this, this is something that we do with one another. This is a yoke that we put on that Jesus goes alongside us with. And it's something that we do with others, it's not something that we do alone. And so Jesus is offering us an alternative way, a new way, a lifestyle of what does it look like to follow the way of Jesus. In the late 90s, there was a guy named John Ortberg who uh, wrote the foreword of this book here. And at that time, he was a pastor in a church called Willow Creek, which was a, a really large church in the Chicago area. And it's a church that many other megachurches have emulated since then. So he was a pastor there. So imagine megachurch in the 90s. His life was likely pretty busy and pretty chaotic. And so he had a mentor, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard, who he would talk to in Dallas Willard, was a longtime spiritual mentor, director, theologian, and uh, Orberg comes to Dallas Willard and he says, this is his question. He says, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be? Which is a somewhat arbitrary or somewhat vague question, but if you can think about it, you can think about here's who I am now. Here is like the vision of who I want to be. And this is what Orberg is saying. What do I need to do to become the me I want to be? And Willard says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And that's all he says. Orberg's waiting for him. He's like, okay, that's like number one. What's like two through ten? Give me the rest of it. And that's all he says. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And he goes on to say, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry. Not secularism, not anything else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. So what does it look like to live a lifestyle to ruthlessly eliminate hurry? One thing that Comer does a good job of pointing out is we often have not followed the lifestyle of Jesus. We read about Jesus and we value his teachings and we want to embody his teachings, but we rarely look at the life that Jesus led. Jesus was often going into a quiet place. He was often going away by himself. And so if we were to follow the way of Jesus, then we are to look at the lifestyle that Jesus has. It's something that we build our life around. For me, I love running. It's something that As I get older, as my family expands, running becomes something that it's no longer something I can just go and do whenever I want. I have to craft my life around this. I'm sure the Smiths understand. If Ruben came to me and was like, Joe, I'm ready to be an ultra runner, I'd be like, Ruben, I've been waiting for this day for years. (laughs) I'm waiting for any of you to decide if you want to be an ultra runner. And be like, I'm going to be ecstatic. This is going to be great. And I'm like, okay, what? Like, what's your plan? How are you? How are you going to do this? And he's like, so next weekend, I'm going to go run a hundred mile race. And as he would probably do that, actually, he'd be like, yeah, I'm an ultra runner now. But there's training. There's a lifestyle that comes with these practices. You can't just magically become something without revolving your life around it. What Comer talks about and what we'll actually do later this month is called a rule of life. So January 24th, we'll have a rule of life workshop. And essentially what this is doing is we create a trellis. So as vines and grapes, things like that grow, they grow on a trellis. But the trellis is the foundation. It's the lifestyle. It's the way that things grow. The fruit that is produced is a result of this trellis. And so these rules, these practices that we incorporate are the ways that we start to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. So what are these practices? Comer gives several, you could also just read the book and you would have lots of ideas. But I'll give you a few highlights. His podcast is really good as well. So one practice that he gives is the practice of simplicity. We talked about this a little bit in Generosity Series as well. The practice of simplicity, We're constantly craving more and more, so what does it mean to live a more simple life? One of the things that we're trying to do this year is we're trying to only buy things secondhand. So we're not going to, as much as we can, like we're not going to buy used diapers. We're going (laughs) to buy as much as we can secondhand because as we start to take an inventory of the things that we have, we realize, okay, there's actually not that many things that we need, and the things that we need, how can we find them Secondhand. We're also going to try every week to get rid of something or give something away. Again, much of this is very important, and to take an in inventory to see realistically where am I at? How much time am I spending on these things? How much? How many things do I have in my house that I don't actually need that could be used elsewhere? This uh, next one, this first one being simplicity. This next one being slowing. This one is humorous and it grates against every fiber of my being, but they are, they're hilarious, but they they illuminate the ways that we can very easily be controlled by our hurry. So slowing. Here are some ideas for slowing down. Drive the speed limit. Not 5 miles over the speed limit, not 2 miles over the speed limit. Drive the speed limit. Drive in the slow lane and only the slow lane. That means when you get behind somebody who's going very slow, you just follow them. When you go to the grocery store, pick the longest line you can find and stand in the longest line you can. Bonus points, stand in the longest line you can and don't look at your phone while you're waiting in line. These are all things that I imagine great against you. They're a little bit comical, but as I've been doing some of these things, I've noticed how... I can easily become irritated. There's no reason why the lady going five miles under the speed limit should drive us into fits of rage. But that's something that happens because we're so driven towards hurry. So slowing down, what are some humorous and exciting things that you can do to slow yourself? Even just in the last month or so, I've noticed if I am intentional and in thinking I'm going to slow down, things are less Irritating to me. Leaving well before you need to leave to get somewhere. Get somewhere 10 minutes early and don't take your phone and just sit. How can you slow the pace of your life down? These next three, we talk about these three pretty often. Silence, stillness, and solitude. Henry and was one of the first people to put these three together. Uh, three lies that were attempted to believe. You are what you have, you are what you do, and you are what others say about you. And then these practices are ways that we can begin to combat those lies. Solitude being the way of you are what you have, you get by yourself, there's nothing else around you. Stillness being you are what you do, this is the one that's hard for me because when I'm still, I'm quite literally not doing anything. Or silence, you are what others say about you. When you're in the silence, there's no other voices that you're seeking out approval These are practices that we can do that I believe lead us into a deeper relationship, not only with God, but a deeper relationship with one another. And this last one, this is the one that we are trying to do as a family. This last one is Sabbath. This is something that I've heard about for a very long time, and I've honestly never implemented it. I've never had the tools to do it. I've never had the trellis to build a Sabbath. And so what, what it started to look like for me is, is likely different for everyone else. But for me, my Sabbath has started to include completely turning off my phone. So we did it this past weekend. A uh, disclaimer, if you do this, you should let your loved ones know so that your wife doesn't receive a text message from your mom wondering if you're okay. So I turned off my phone Friday night, and I didn't turn it back on until this morning, And it was incredible. Like, if there's anything, any practice you can do, try that. Try a 24-hour sabbatical from your phone. There might be some shakes and some withdrawals involved, but it is amazing the attentiveness that I now have to the people around me. There's not something else pulling my attention and distracting me. The way that this, even just in a few months of practicing some of this, of of trying to put limitations specifically on my phone because ultimately my phone does not control me. I should be, if it's a parent-child relationship, I should be the parent of my phone. My phone should not be the parent of me. So putting my phone to sleep every night, not sleeping with it in our room, turning on do not disturb so I don't get notifications. Even, this is a fun little trick, on the iPhone, again, 2020, getting an iPhone You can turn it to grayscale. So, grayscale is something that makes, especially social media, very unappealing. When all these beautiful pictures turn up in black and white, it's a lot less appealing. There's so many different things that you can do. And the reason that this is so important to me is because I've, in myself, between my relationship with myself, my relationship with God, and specifically my relationship with Kate, I've noticed an increased awareness, an increased sensitivity. I've noticed ways that I am more attentive to people because there's other things that aren't distracting me. There's other hurries that are not distracting me. All of this, I believe, is meant to lead us into a deeper life, a deeper life with one another, a deeper life with God, and a deeper life with ourselves. Eugene Peterson's translation of the message, he ends this passage by saying, this leads us into a life To live freely and lightly. Imagine if that is the way that you could truly describe your life. The yoke of Jesus is upon us. And I've lived freely and lived lightly. So every week. We close out uh, this portion of the service with an intentional few moments of silence. For all the reasons that we just explained. We're inundated with noise we're inundated with news and social media and sports and so many things so for us to be able to just sit in silence in stillness we've intentionally made this a time so that we can be refreshed it's only a few minutes but it might be some of the only minutes of silence that we have for a week so Ruben will play, and afterwards we <clears throat> will partake in communion.